Good morning. I am William Morgan, and this is 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and TheSyncBook.com. It's a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. And today is the 8th of October, and this is episode number 105, which continues this month's theme of our conversation uh, on our humanness, explored by way of our heads and our hearts. Um, we'll be doing a little swimming this morning in a dark pool of light. And we will do so with our guest, Richard Grossinger. Gro- oh, I'm sorry. Blew it. <laughs> you even were prepped at the beginning of the interview. Hello, I'm Douglas Bowles, and today on 42 Minutes, we begin a series of conversations about consciousness with, with the prof- prolific writer and explorer of the subject, Mr. Grossin- Grossinger is the author of the 2012 three-volume magnum opus, Dark Pool of Light, published by North Atlantic Books, which discusses the nature of reality and being, aiming at an understanding of our own existence. He is the co-founder and publisher of North Atlantic Books, as well as its forerunner, the journal IO. His works include early books of experimental prose, a series of titles on holistic medicine, cosmology, and embryology, two memoirs, and recent books exploring these themes, related topics, and aspects of contemporary politics and pop culture. More information about him and his work can be found at richardgrossinger.com and northatlanticbooks.com. He divides his time between Berkeley and Maine. Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Doug. And Will. <laughs> well, I, I have to ask because, um, you know, this is, a, this is a real difficult book to to get through because every chapter I have to go back and I, I read it again. So I have to ask, what exactly am I reading right now? Um, well, I wonder myself. I, 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 don't, I, I was taught very early that unless you learn something when writing it, the person reading it doesn't learn anything really from reading it. And so... To some extent, um, it, it's a shifting field. It doesn't. There isn't. There isn't a conclusion or a thesis. Um, there's nothing I'm positing. I'm simply trying to explore a very wide range of paradigms, ideas, um, um, states of being, um, and to. The closest thing to um, to a goal is to pin them down in relation to one another, not so much to say what they are or offer some sort of conclusion, but to relate to to make it clear how they kind of frame up um, together. And this particular book started off as as one, and as I kept working with it, I, I felt that that there really were three very separate arenas and that they would be easier to understand if I broke them out. And so, I mean, with chapter one, you even <laughs> state it in such blatant terms, you know, what the fuck is this? <laughs> and the, the is is italicized. What is, what is the is exploring? Um, well, 
you know, the it's a very simple question, but um, it's almost like a koan. Um, you're you you butt up against really difficult questions when um, when you begin to um, to to ask what does that is represent. I um, it's really the link between a state of being that we experience and an outside world um, that is clearly there in some sense, but which we know through our own, um, our own history and nervous system and biology and, uh, and mythology. So the, the is, is really us in a sense. And when we ask, what is this? I don't think we can ever know what this is. That is the thing outside us. But I'm not trying to be tricky or, you know, philosophical in that sense. I'm just expressing the basic human sense of wonder, which everybody probably stops and says at some point or other, what the fuck is this? (laughs) What am I I doing? What's this all about? and that's um, and that doesn't get fixed by anything in science. You know, I describe at the beginning of the third volume how pretty much when I was done with this, I, I was at a event where I got into a conversation with a neuroscientist, and I put this this all before him that how did he square his, the proposition that all he experienced was the mirage created by electrochemical events and that none of it was real. It was just a hallucination. And yet earlier in our conversation, when we talked about our lives, he he acted as though it was all real. And he looked at me sort of dumbfounded. And then after a few seconds, he said something which I think is really profound, although I don't think he intended it quite that way. He said, it's more fun that way. Um, and I don't think it would be very much fun if we had to worry this existence at every point and say, well, is this real or is this um, just chemicals flowing through synapses? Then who am I who's, um, who's locking into these chemicals? And um, the psychic I stu- I've studied with the last few years, John Friedlander, likes to stay that science's claim is that everything is real but meaningless when it's exactly the opposite. None of this is real, but it's incredibly meaningful, which is far more important. That brings me to another question. What is the meaning of Dark Pool of Light? Um, you mean the title? Yeah, the what is a Dark Pool of Light? What is what is the... Um, well, that was that. You know, I'm a literary writer, and that phrase just sort of came to me. Um, um, uh, ready-made, and although I'm not going to make some, you know, sort of you know, claim in that sense that it was channeled, <laughs> it did just the air. And um, was the title there before the book was? Pretty much. Uh, it was there when I just started making notes. Um, I had that that image when I had only, you know, maybe five or six pages of just journal notes. I had this image that I would call them dark pool of light. Um, and 
I can, um, I can kind of interrogate the phrase, and I have, but um, it's, it also just stands by itself as a kind of a short poem. When I interrogate it, I think the two most interesting interrogations are one, that it becomes a link between um, the most advanced scientific meditation on matter and the most advanced kind of Buddhist meditation on space and existence. They kind of both um, scrub down to the same transparent field, which I think of as a kind of dark pool through which a radiance flows. And then the other thing is the project I've been involved in the last year since finishing it is rewriting an old 1980s book of mine that was published by Sierra Club back then called The Night Sky, which is a cosmology book. And the moment I started working on The Night Sky, I realized, well, the night sky and dark pool of light are, are totally parallel tropes. Um, they're, they're descriptions of the same thing. One is the description of, of it as cosmology, and the other is kind of the description of it as a psycho-spiritual space. But both are dark pools of light, the night sky and consciousness. As above, so below. And that too. Yeah. Um, so you, you've mentioned matter a couple times um, and as a, like a divergent tangent. One of the themes that continually arises here is this notion of uh, transcendence and what that means. And especially in light of um, the 2012 hoopla, this idea that, you know, we're reaching an omega point and that we were going to somehow go through a, a radical transformation. You know, what are your thoughts about, say, evolution and the notion of matter and, and our spiritual relationship between, you know, consciousness and physical matter? Well, there I see, I feel at least three questions. In the chat. <laughs> um, he does that all the time. As, as, far, <laughs> as far as 2012 goes, I would just say that I have the sense that we did pass through some sort of gateway at that point, but that like any gateway worth, worth its weight in salt or whatever, it's very subtle. And because it's deep, and so the change that it's going to bring about is not going to be like the curtain dropping on one act and rising on a whole other scene. And people who expected that, either utopianly or, or apocalyptically, were kind of imposing a human drama on the universe, which could care less about those kinds of dramas. So I do think that, um, I mean, I just feel, um, I felt right at that time, something switch. Um, and I still feel that. Now, whether that's me or not is really, really not, not a central issue, because for any of us, the only way we know is to continue to explore what we feel and see if it becomes more real or seems more like a fantasy. And if it continues to seem more real, then it becomes as real as it can be. Um, that is, it becomes meaningful to go back to that, um, that, that kind of um, little motto. But um, on the other question of, uh, well, the second question, 
uh, I would say that in my view of things, um, consciousness precedes matter in the universe and that matter is a form of consciousness. That is, a, it, it's, it's a vibration of an intelligence which is so different from our form of intelligence that it doesn't, we don't recognize it as intelligence. Um, but that it's, it's more, to use the old kind of, I don't know when it is, 18th century uh, notion, the universe is more like a great thought than a great machine. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so that I would just throw that out, out there. I've dealt with that in many books, probably none more thoroughly than in a book called Embryos, Galaxies, and Sentient Beings which I did from 2000 to 2003, in which I had the final chapters about the relation of mind to matter. But then the third question I hear there, which may actually be the one you were really asking, was do I think that things overall are evolving or that there's a progression um, as opposed to just... Um, same old, same old, or... Well, evolution is loaded in itself because depending on your point of view, evolution is quite purposeful or evolution is, you know... I think there needs to be a, by... a, a clarification or it's, or it's of terms random, as far random. as evolution is concerned, though. I mean, because... Like Darwinian evolution is random and algorithmic, right. but it's still evolution. Instead yeah. of a more of a like a uh, uh, some kind of organic blossom of perfection. Yeah, you know, um, I've quoted now three times the same um, the same long passage from Terence McKenna from the late '90s, one of the last talks he gave, in which he he makes the argument that that nothing could be more obvious than that the universe is complexifying at least our portion of the universe, and that um, it just would be plain obvious to anyone looking at it um, that um, the, the, um, he says that the alternative to thinking that is that all of this happened in the middle of nowhere for no reason. And in the talk, he kind of took a pause and he said, now, now that just about does it for the height of incredulity, like unbelievable ideas. And then he said, I hear that science, Scientologists say that God is a, plan, a clam on another planet, but that even that doesn't outdo the notion that all of this happened no, in the middle of nowhere for no reason. But that is the basic issue. Science is um, framed by that. Um, and I don't question that science is really successful operating on that premise. It's a really good um, empirical premise to to build machines and to um, and to solve physical problems. But as a way of understanding what the fuck is this, <laughs> it's it's useless. Well, so and that's where you start near the beginning of the book in the in the first volume. You uh, you look at this from the scientific materialistic point of view and you try and see if you can get to the you know the dark pool of light via the you know the technical and apparatus you know the human apparatus could you give our our listeners a brief 
course in anatomy? Yeah. Well, that's something I that's something I do in in all my books. I pretty much follow science as far as it'll go, and then I try and uh, mark the point where where it it kind of it, it doesn't go past a certain point. And I try and find that point, but take it up to that point. So science. Science says that anything, to be very broad here, anything which exists in the world must have a physical substrate somewhere. Um, you know, something physical has to underlie it. And, um, and that, um, that um, in, the case of, um, in the case of consciousness, that's the brain, because there's no other proximal source for consciousness. So... Um, so science gets stuck, neuroscience in particular, with looking for the source of consciousness in the brain. I, uh, in the book, I, I found, came to two kind of very simple summaries of that. First of all, I define the, the view, of the, the scientific view of consciousness as um, a light goes on, then a light goes off, but it wasn't even a light, uh, or it wasn't really a light. Um, but then in terms of how far you can get with science, I think there is a, comp a very clear dividing line. I th and this is what I arrived at in volume one. Um, neuroscience and physics, too, each in their own way, each in its own way, get, can do a whole lot with consciousness once it's already inside matter. But science doesn't have a clue as to how to get it inside matter. And that's well, that's where the paradigm breaks down, um, and um, and 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 that's that's where one can begin to ask uh, different interesting questions, and kind of poke at science from the outside. And how do you feel about magic per se, like um, studies like uh, Aleister Crowley or this whole idea of forcing your will? Upon the randomness of the universe, uh, how much how much credence can we put into to new age thought like the secret and stuff of that nature? Um, well, I think all of that, um, you know, there's so many levels to that. Um, at some point in your life, you have to believe that that can be done just to get off the ground and just to get out of the materialist framework, but. I think that there is a fundamental mistake, and it's both um, it's both a um, practical physical mistake and an ethical moral mistake in trying to foist your will on things. And John Friedlander again has a particularly um, uh, elegant way of putting that when he says um, that. The new age, so many new age, um, um, you know, explorers think that that the idea is to control reality, and they think that the phrase to create reality means to control reality, but we can't control reality at, at all, and in fact, we don't want to control reality because John adds that we spent probably a trillion or more years designing this particular operating system and we're not going to blow it up all at once just to get something we want or to solve a problem. 
Um, the whole idea of a fixed reality in which things can't be manipulated, I think, is crucial in the broadest sense of the, of the cosmos and us to our own um, evolution. And here I mean spiritual evolution. We have to wrestle with density, with shadows, with projections, and they, don't, they can't be budged just by will. On the other hand, and this is a paradox, and it's a really important one, by doing particular trainings and learning certain systems, and Crowley did that in, in his way, and, and Madame Blavatsky and Buddhist lamas, you can create reality. And once you begin creating reality, you lose interest in controlling it. Creating it means putting your um, will at the, um, in a way, at the mercy of a multi-dimensional field of which you're only conscious, you're only conscious of a small part of that field. You don't know all the other entities that are participating in it in an interdependent fashion. And you enter that field with compassion and good intentions, and then you try and create forms in it. Um, in Buddhism, like, like they're called topas mm. in some forms of Buddhism, you create thought forms, and you use those for, thought forms to try and, um, and emanate certain realities. But they're never going to be like, um, like lining up... Um, um, wine, women, and song, or whatever. Um, they're gonna, um, they're gonna be seeds that manifest in unexpected ways, and that's why I call it create rather than control. You you plant seeds, but you don't try and control the the growth of what comes from that seed. And that's interesting in in light of one of the other themes that's been arising, both in terms with the you know the spiritual transcendence that's you know continually arising but there's also this notion of technological transcendence where well okay how about it as an aside um it's it's been it's getting colder it's fall and so for me this kind of means bath season and before facebook i used to like to take a hot bath and deeply immerse into you know whatever I was reading and part of that is in the bath you're kind of you can't fidget or click on a hyperlink or do anything outside of that you're just there and so if you want to you know read the text for a time and then go underwater and, and really <laughs> contemplate what you just I, <laughs> so what I'm saying is as I was reading your book and doing this it gave me a deep appreciation of my human technology you know you're spelling out the the trillions of years of building the operating system, like you're saying, you know, and it's and it we just reached this point where, wow, you know, having a body, and then consciousness in that body is really super magic, but then in contrast to that, we've kind of become these strange little gods where we want to create worlds with our technology, and then we think that world that we can control might be. It feels like you're kind of asking if technology is part of evolution too, Doug. Everything is part of evol. Every, everything is part of evolution in its way. 
And I should add, by the way, that when I say trillions of years, I understand that the universe itself is only 13, what, 13.8 billion years old or 13.6 billion years old, according to astrophysics. So when the trillions of years I'm talking about um, involve a different dimension of reality, they, they, they're more like uh, anthroposophical um, trillions of years uh, rather than uh, astrophysical trillions of years. Um, <coughs> but yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I think that, that um, I have one particular little theme I've played with in my work going back to the 70s, which is look outside at the world as it's been remade and you will see the full realization of the Stone Age shaman's dream. Um, uh, that, that, that the attempt to, um, to invent a reality that you could inhabit with your own hands and your own minds in this body um, has been realized. Um, the, the world which is considered a uh, a physical chemical world is really an alchemical transformation of the planet by shamanic means, although the actual doing of it is completely physical and, and, and practical and, and technological. So on a, I think on a karmic level, technology is absolutely necessary because it's the portal we have to pass through in order to get beyond it. Um, the mystic Andrew Harvey, um, says of the 20th century, we have to kill God in order to find him. And I think we have to kill our human dimension in order to reclaim it. And technology also, uh, in a way, is, uh, is a replica of our own bodies. Um, we, create these, uh, we create artificial intelligence out of our own intelligence, and we create um, objects um, that out of our own, we project our own anatomy into objects that make life more, more convenient and um, and more successful by our by our terms, and all of this has an esoteric uh, context too. So, and anyhow, you can't avoid it. I just um, one last comment on that. Um, my daughter, we, uh, my wife and I just went to see our daughter. Um, perform in Boston, and she's a multimedia artist um, who goes by the name Miranda July. And she was asked the same question almost identically. Um, somebody in the audience said, technology, I really don't like it, but I can't, I can't avoid it. And, and, she, and, and her work relies on technology a lot. And she was saying, yeah, she said, it's really important to me that I can remember a time before any of this happens. And, uh, and, and she did a whole book um, about people off, off the technological grid who in a certain sense don't exist because they never, use a they never use a computer, they're not on Facebook, they have no online identity, and they in a sense have disappeared and are holding up the real world while people are participating in this virtual world. Um, and she's made a movie about that, too. Um, anyway, I don't want to get too far off no, that, track. No, that was so. very interesting. No, it's just, it, you make me think a lot. That's one of the, thing, that's one of the, the little 
gotcha moments that I had. So, you know, we started with the question, uh, you know, what the fuck is this, right? And mm-hmm. as I'm reading this book in the bathtub, as I was saying, I'm like, who is this guy? <laughs> who is this guy? And so I flipped to the back and I'm reading your bio. And I'm like, oh, he's Miranda July's father. That's hilarious. Uh, yeah, I know. It is kind of, it is hilarious when your kids do things totally be, your kid is just starting. So what is Finn going to do? It's like, I can remember, I can remember Miranda as, as Mandy Grossinger, you know, Miranda. Um, I mean, that's, that's who, who she was. And, and I watched her go through all the metamorphoses and, and, and the kind of remarkable relationship between what role I had in it and I had a big role, but also what uh, the large portion of it that I had no role in, that was just this being manifesting from whoever she was and however she came into this world. Um, that, that, that's very interesting. There's probably a conversation there, yeah, but Will and I are both parents. Right, and, and so you mentioned Finn. I mean, we kind of had a little bit of a, a sync at the very beginning here because you guys had the common – this is pre-recording, but – you guys had the common name of Finn, and I wonder if you would speak to synchronicity here for a second. Well, that's um, that's a topic that I think um, it's been hanging around as a big deal, you know, for a long time. Ever since, certainly, ever since Jung decided to name it that. But I mean, you can find it back, and and, and I've done this in the night sky, for instance. You can find it back in the writings of the pre-Socratics. Um, you can find uh, foreshadowings of synchronicity. Um, I in in the third volume of Dark Pool of Light, in I believe it's the fifth chapter, I have what I think is about as good a take on synchronicity as I can do. That is, I hold as many elements of it, balls in the air at the same time, juggle them as possible. I juggle um, I juggle. Uh, hunting scapula, scapulomancy in indigenous tribes in the subarctic and tarot cards and uh, wow. and a bunch of stories that people have told me about the most amazing synchronistic events. I try and juggle those all at the same time and try to use them to point towards a simple model, a kind of more like Rupert Sheldrake-like science model in which in which the universe is linked at a higher dimension by something other than cause and effect at this level. But I also think that synchronicity points to a much, much deeper um, um, equation in the universe. Oh, and then there's this whole other thing, which is I'm living a, a third to a half of the year on Mount Desert Island in Maine, which is not an island in so far as there's a bridge across to it, so nobody <laughs> thinks of being on an island in that way. But my name for it is a synchronicity sinkhole, and uh, Mount Desert has the reputation of Sedona, not nearly as big as the Sedona vortices, but there are vortices on Mount Desert. There are 33 small mountains on the and five huge lakes on this island, and most of the island is federal park um, called Acadia, and lots of things happen there that don't happen off the islands and the synchronicities are so epidemic that the average person blue collar person fisherman carpenter auto mechanic 
the moment you talk about it, whatever you call it, they'll recognize it and they'll say, yeah, I mean, it's totally weird here. And um, you run into people, things happen that never happen anywhere, at least don't happen with the same frequency. It's made me think a lot about what creates a synchronicity sinkhole or a vortex. And I, in, in Dark Pool of Light, I really dig into that in the third volume because I go from the synchronicity, I think, in Chapter 5, um, or maybe it's all in Chapter 5. I think I did it all in Chapter 5. I go from that to a discussion of the, of the Mount Desert Island vortices and my experiences with them, including one particularly weird experience that happened at the time I published the book, was, sorry, was writing the book, um, where I found um, an injured hiker on the trail mm. on a day that nobody should have been hiking, certainly not her without a cell phone, but certainly not me or anyone else. And, um, and the, the, the way I found her led me to um, the following year when I came back, I decided to do some experiments to see if I could find the energy that was working. And what I found was so subtle and transparent that it really put to shame all of my pushing around trying to feel for sticky chi fields or something. You know, chi energy. <laughs> sure. With your hands it out was, in front of you. Like. Yeah, yeah. It was so subtle. It was just beautiful. And it gave me the chills because I could barely see it. It was just there for an instant and gone. But when it was there, it was just stunning. And um, and I I I've been do we've been going now for 13 years. Um, we got tired of being in California all the time, so got a, a cheap second house in Maine so that we could go back back here <laughs> where I am now. But I have a psychic group every Tuesday night there, which is just open to whoever comes. And a lot of what we do is try and talk to the island, and try and find the intelligence or the multiple intelligences that are that are are making this field and to also ask ask those for help and 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 offer offer gifts back to it uh, just gifts of one's own energy and i think in the second or third one we did this year back in august um i was getting cute and because uh, it's a group i mean there are there are fishermen come and um I'm amazed that the guy who owns the local laundromat and sports <laughs> bars, and if you saw him, and he's a wonderful guy, so I'm not putting him down anyway, but if you saw him in a, in a lineup of 50 people, you would say, no, he's the one who isn't coming. <laughs> um, and uh, he looks as though he belongs in the sports bar, but he comes um, religiously. But I, you know, I did this whole thing, and people were... We all really felt it, that, that we got, had this momentary link. And I just said out of the blue, sort of like dark pool of light came to me. I just said, this is the best offer you'll ever get. Um, that's what I felt. I mean, I felt this vortex here is so great that when you get it, um, it's really sweet. Wow. Um, and well, so it's, it's like you going underwater in the bathtub. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then, and then that alludes to the acorn, the city and the acorn that you're mentioning in okay. the, the first. I did use that trope all through that, all through the, <laughs> the book. Yeah. How do you get the whole city and the acorn? Yeah. 
Um, oh. Which is interesting because one of the things that I brush up against again and again is that there is, you know, a connection between most things. But then I noticed that people and where they actually live, the land that they have a relationship to, they lend each other characters. And so you're speaking about the, you know, the the vortex and Maine and the people and and the, the high weirdness. I'm, you know, I'm wondering if you've experienced that, where there is this kind of quality that the land lends itself to the people that live there. Yeah, it has to be true. But but the moment, like all these things, the moment when you begin looking for them too hard, and that's where I think the new age becomes really irritating, um, when you begin looking through for them too hard, I think you offend them and you drive them away um, because they don't exist in that way and they're not meant to exist in that way. Um, and that's not to say that there aren't many new age things that are wonderful, but the premise can sometimes uh, be really oppressive and also sort of guilt trip people. Like if you're not able to do it, you're missing. Well, if people are not able to do it or are missing, it's because they're going about it the wrong way. And often the worst way to go about it um, is, to, is to go at it too directly and too explicitly. And, and we published, our press published a great book by this uh, Jungian psychologist, Robert Sardello, I think it's called Steps on the Stone Path, about how to communicate with crystals, which shoots to hell virtually every New Age uh, notion of crystals for which he has nothing but contempt. <laughs> and yet he takes totally seriously that they're intelligent beings who want to participate with us and who need an invitation in the right terms, in the in respectful terms. And how do you respect their own autonomous existence. And this touches upon a whole concept that comes out of Jung also, and is almost as juicy as, um, as synchronicity, and that's the concept of psychoids, um, which I, there's not time to get into here, <laughs> but a simple definition, a psychoid is an autonomous entity, has its own independent existence, and we can't reach it, but we bring it in we bring its existence into being in our world by our projections toward it into the darkness so jung uh, associated it with fairies goblins leprechauns but also ufos right. at the right. same time though that entity is reaching towards us in order to participate with us and it can't find us either we're its psychoid and this notion has been extended from Jung by Sardello and by the uh, crystal guy, Bob Simmons, who's an, uh, another author of ours, um, who did a recent book called Stones of the New Consciousness. But this would lead to a whole discussion on crystals, which we don't want to do. So let's, let's backtrack <laughs> to it. But the crystals definitely root us in this world with material. And mm -hmm. so in that with where we're at um, environmentally and politically and, you know, uh, politically. Yes. Yeah. Um, it seems like you're a pretty hopeful person. What do, what Optimism do you think about or pessimism? Yeah. For the future. Well, I think, uh, uh, well, both. I mean, I can get as dark as you want <laughs> and much darker than I want. Plus I come, I come from a family with multiple suicides in it. So I'm, 
including my mother and brother. So I, I can be pessimistic, but I think that the very nature of consciousness is, is optimistic. Um, all of this stuff is amazing, even the worst of it. And so you have to trust that the universe that, in which this has come into being um, has, has an intention that pretty much um, um, puts, puts to shame our, our minimal um, kinds of um, stories, um, narratives for what the universe is trying to do. So I think that, that no matter what happens, um, that, that, that there is a fundamental optimism that transcends that. And I don't mean that I have the, um, the power or training to identify with that all the time, but I think that there are people who do, um, shamans and lamas and other advanced practitioners. Um, I don't think it means um, going into um, non-dual reality either. I, I think they participate in dual reality yet are are optimistic about it. Um, I think all of the problems that we face, and they certainly are gargantuan, there are problems. They come out of us so that they're an opportunity for to explore our, our own shadow, um, to go into the darkness. I, on some level, and I touched on this in the third volume of Dark Pool of Light, um, I think that, the, that a lot of the bad stuff that happens um, is because of curiosity. We, we just don't know who we are or what our own nature is, and the only way we can find out is to try out the worst things we can think of. Um, and if you want a list of those in human terms, try reading the novelist Dean Koontz, <laughs> who's the master of the sociopathic mind. Um, and I kind of, I kind of, I quote from him a little bit in the in the early part, in the part of the third volume called "How How Did Evil Get Into the Universe?" And I, I think at a certain level, it's it's not evil. It's just a kind of perverse curiosity, a dark curiosity that can't detached from its own obsessive compulsive object. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, this is a, a number of, um, pirouettes around that question, but, um, <laughs> yeah, well, well that, these are, these are big questions, any of which could go on for a long time. So that being <laughs> said, we would like to speak to you again in the future, if that's all right with you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I enjoyed it. Um, I like speaking to you all in Denver and Boise. <laughs> Thank you. Great combination. That was 42 Minutes. Thanks for sharing it with us. You've been listening to... Oh, to come Richard on. You can do it, buddy. Gross, Grossinger on SyncBook Radio, production of the SyncBook.com. More information about the work of Mr. Grossinger can be found at richardgrossinger.com. For more information about the SyncBook, our guests, to check out past shows, or sub to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at 42minutes.com. If you'd like to support the show, we urge you to become a donor. You'll find donation links under each episode on the website. And if you are in the Bay Area, plan for a night of the Radio 8 Ball toward the end of this month, Saturday, October 26th. 6th at the Monkey House. <laughs> at the Monkey House yeah. in Berkeley. Thanks so much and have a wonderful Tuesday. Yeah, thanks, guys. <laughs> 
Put your dreams away for now I won't see you for some time I am lost in my mind I get lost in my mind Mama once told me You're already home when you feel love I am lost in my mind I get lost in my mind Oh, I get lost in my mind 